Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. For this particular session, I would like to look at the subject of big fish, small area stillwater trout fisheries and the range of issues, some scientific and others not so, that surround them. Fishing for big stillwater trout falls into the two categories of blind casting and stalking. There have been, and despite economic constraints, probably always will be, small surface area trout waters dotted all around the country that are stocked with very big fish, deliberately cultivated to help satisfy that particular area of demand. Pennine fishery in Lancashire and Felindry in Wales are two examples which immediately spring to mind. But at both of those fisheries, water clarity is such that other than heading for any known holding features, you throw in your fly and you take your chance. On the other side of the coin are the Jim Clear fisheries of Abington and Deaver Springs in rural Hampshire. Two chalk stream fed fisheries where every fish they contain can be seen and individually targeted, which as you might expect has spawned an equally clear division with regard to the tackle and tactics required to get a result, not to mention of course the ethics of record fish grown on specifically for that purpose. Though blind casting and stripping can, in some instances, still pick up a few fish including the odd biggie at Abington and Deaver, heavy subsurface weed at these fisheries makes life difficult for any sort of meaningful chucking and chancet approach. Polaroids, tiny weighted nymphs and sight casting to individual fish, or even jiggling with only the leader out of the rod's end eye and the fly virtually on the nose of a fish under your feet are the time-honoured clearwater techniques and much more exciting techniques, it has to be said, than blind casting in hope, where rather than suddenly feeling the weight of a fish while stripping your fly back in, you actually look for the white interior of a taking trout's mouth as an indicator to strike. The problem is that having developed a taste for this type of fishing, coupled to a realisation that the potential size for cultivated fish has not yet reached its upper limit, in the 1980s and 90s, trout anglers became very demanding, always wanting more. As a result, during that era, a handful of purpose-built trout waters pandering to that demand sprang up and were very popular, though with less competition between fisheries now as the cost of ticketing associated with producing such big fish creeps ever further out of many enthusiasts' reach. One of those waters was, and so far as still having a minimum stocking policy of around £5, with regular helpings of double-figure fish, is Diva Springs in Hampshire, which has, as part of its illustrious history, held a British record for both the brown as well as the rainbow trout. And that's where I am right now with stalking expert Graham Pullen to film a video on the subject, and hopefully, later, record a podcast too. Already we've had a few decent fish and have spotted at least a couple of good doubles in one corner, which, having refused all efforts, are being rested for a couple of hours until later in the afternoon, which has given me this opportunity for a short time out, and a talk with Diva Springs' Stuart Barrett. As I've already hinted, the economics of producing a constant stream of monster, or even record-breaking trout, has to some extent been shelved, and not only here, but at the other big fish producing waters previously mentioned. So in your opinion, Stuart, if one of the other fisheries suddenly jumped back onto the treadmill and started monopolising not only the publicity, but also the share of those customers willing to pay the going rate, would Diva Springs feel any obligation to rejoin that race and get back into monster fish production? Which your past history has shown you can do as well as, 
if not better than any of the opposition. I don't think there's the competition between fisheries that there used to be, say in the, the 1990s. Uh, we do like to keep uh, kind of up to date with each other. If one fishery were to grow a 20 pounder then, then we might want to get somewhere close but uh, I think times have changed, the, the, maybe the novel, novelty value has worn off a little bit uh, from the old days. One way you could perhaps knock any potential resurgence back into place might be to do what you've done so well in the past and work on the big brown trout, which besides carrying a much greater kudos is something your competitors have never been able to do as well as Diva Springs. Do you think then, if the competition ever did hot up, that that might give you an edge? Uh, I think it probably would, but uh, the demand's not there like it was years ago. Uh, it would be nice to grow a big one. Personally, I would like to grow big fish. I see that as a as a challenge, as much as trying to catch a big fish sometimes. Uh, maybe so in the future we can grow another big brown or big blues, big tigers. Plenty of species we can grow. Stillwater salmon are quite popular now, which we have done in the past. What if then, on top of producing more big fish, one of the other fisheries also produced a new record, particularly one to topple Diva's brown trout. Might that put additional weight behind selecting some of the more promising individuals, refilling your unique underground rearing facility and growing on a few extra special fish? We might have to get in gear a little bit then and maybe grow a much bigger fish, but I would say the bubble has maybe burst a little bit. Uh, there haven't been any really big fish caught there has been big fish grown that haven't made it as far as the lake uh, but we'll, we'll just wait and see see what the, the next few years bring when you say that the bubble has burst is that through lack of interest these days growing on cost to the fishery or less of a willingness even amongst the most fanatical big fish stalkers to pay the kind of ticket prices necessary to produce the huge fish we became conditioned to expect maybe 20 years ago I think maybe a, a bit of all those factors really. It does, does cost more to grow fish now than it did in the 90s. Uh, fish food prices are going up, the price of fuels going up and fishermen will only pay a certain amount the fish for certain size fish. Fisheries elsewhere do, do bigger fish and charge more for it but to catch an average of six pound fish there's a line drawn that fishermen will only pay and we can only stock a certain amount of really big fish if fishermen are only going to pay that certain amount. You say that the cost of producing such big fish has gone up. Is that in real terms or just in relative terms through keeping pace with inflation and its effects generally on costs? It has, I think. The price of fish meal has rocketed, especially since I started fish farming ten years ago. Um, so the, the price of food is going up almost twice a year now. Uh, so then that price needs to be reflected in our, in our ticket price. But surely it was being reflected as heavily, or almost as heavily, when lakes such as Diva Springs and Avington were excavated. And until both they and yourselves established your big fish credentials, it must have been something of a gamble. So tell us a bit about the history of the fishery and its objectives before the mechanical diggers set about their work. Big fish waters were kind of brand new in the late 80s, a bit, bit of a novelty factor. So a chap called Nigel Jackson decided to kind of develop the fishery and it's completely man-made from there. All spring-fed off the River Diva, all big fish, always has been. But was it always going to be a big fish water? Or was the pressure from other clear water fisheries in the area? No, it was, it was definitely always planned to be a big fish water. 
uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, a, a three or four pound rainbow trout was an enormous fish. Uh, not so now, it's become a bit more common to catch, or a lot more common to catch one. Um, but back then it was a big fish and a, a small double figure fish was colossal. Fishermen were willing to pay good money to come and catch them, especially in the clear water where we could you know, stop these fish, people could see them and stalk them, uh, almost follow them around all day really. In terms of producing these fish then, do you operate an egg to record fish conveyor belt? Do you buy in from fry and grow them on? Or do you select out promising fish for extra special attention? Uh, we buy our fish in a pound in size now. Uh, the last fish we bought in that size was in May. They've now reached two and a half to three pounds, so we'll be stocking them before Christmas. Uh, we feed the same ration as any other trout farmer feed, use the same fish food. Our fish are just given a little bit more room um, and a bit more time if they need it to get bigger. Uh, generally, an average size fish of five and a half or six pound is nearly two years old. Anything bigger than that, say a 12, 14 pounder, might be three years old. When you're getting up to 20 pounders, you're talking four, maybe five years old. So it's fairly long-term investment as soon as the new pound fish arrive. Obviously, when someone develops a technique that puts the opposition in the shade, you're going to get all sorts of rumours circulating, along with dodgy half-truth stories in the press. One story I clearly remember during the rounds, supposedly involving one of your competitors, was that fry from the hatchery were put into a bath with the taps running, and that only those fish strong enough to swim against the current were selected for growing on or breeding purposes. A quite literal example, I suppose, of the Darwinian principle of survival of the fittest. Have you ever heard of that particular story? And even if you haven't, would there be any merit in running a survival competition such as that? Uh, not in my fish farming career have I ever done that. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to be sat in the bath full of fry myself. Uh, I might try it one day. <laughs> so if you don't spawn and hatch the fry yourselves, where do they come from? And are they bred specifically with a view to the type of growth rates you are able to get from them? Or are they produced simply as part of a general batch, including fish to be killed at a smaller size for the table? Uh, we buy our fish from Franklin's Fish Farm near Oldsford. Uh, they breed, like you say, table fish as well as restocking, um, and they're just just normal rainbow trout. When we buy them, when they arrive at the farm, they get split up only a little bit, just to give them a bit of room, a bit more room than Franklin's would give them. Um, then it's taken from there. They, they get grown on to say three, four pound, graded off. Some are then kept to put in the lake as stockfish. Others held back again, maybe grown on a bit bigger to ten, twelve, maybe even bigger. So they're all the same genetic batch? All the same genetic batch, yeah. Yeah, all the rainbows come from the same place. And what about your browns? Browns vary. We, we get them from a few different sources as and when we need them. We try not to do too many browns in one go. They do take up a lot of room and very time-consuming to grow, but you know, we do, as much as the anglers like to catch them, we like to grow them to see, to, you know, put them in the lake to see people catch them. So it's... it's Difficult, difficult browns are at the best of times, but we do like to do them and uh, we will we'll be doing more next year. So what's the difficulty involved in growing on big browns as opposed to big rainbows? Very time consuming to grow. They do suffer a little bit more from disease, but it's just the time factor. Having enough room to keep them for long enough to get them big enough. You mentioned earlier that the rainbows, whether they're grown on or put in as stockies, share the same genetic ancestry. But surely that's not absolutely the case. 
it can't be because you also stock Dammer and Blues some biggies of which I've seen here today in the holding pens and you also occasionally have albinos and golden trout both of which are genetic variations which occur naturally but can also be manipulated to satisfy public demand. What do you do about getting hold of those variations for stocking? Is there a deliberate policy in place? Do you rely on a few turning up here and there in standard rainbow deliveries? Or is there someone out there producing them specifically to add a bit of variety? Mike Davis at Damrum grows the blues for us. Uh, we tend to get them in in the autumn, try and make them last throughout the year, putting a few in as and when we can, especially when the water's clear, because it's, it's almost looking into an ornamental goldfish pond watching the blues swim around. So offers offers some very exciting fishing. What's so special about the Dameron Blue anyway? They're just a slight colour variation on the standard rainbow theme, besides which, I've heard their flesh is not as palatable, which is the reason why the club I belong to has now stopped stocking them. Is there any truth in this, or is it just another dose of urban myth? As far as I can tell, they taste the same as normal rainbows. Grow much the same, just, just coloration on the outside is different. As a matter of policy then, what, if anything, do you do in terms of specifically buying in any of the other genetic variations? Or do you just wait to see if any turn up in the general batches, without any particular deliberate attempt to get hold of them? Um, just mainly the blues we do is something a bit different. Um, we do a few goldies or sandies they're called, the, the slightly uh, lighter ones, uh, as and when we can, but generally just the blues in the autumn, make them last through the year. And is it fishery policy only to stop with triploids? They are, yes, all triploids. Occasionally the browns will be mixed sex or hens, uh, but try and stop purely triploids so they don't mature through the winter. For the benefit of people listening in with no fishery science background, Triploid fish start life as normal eggs with two sets of chromosomes from the mother already inside them, which are joined by one set of chromosomes from the father's sperm. One set each from the father and the mother then combine, and the remaining set from the mother is discarded. But whatever it is they do at the hatchery causes that third redundant set to stay where it is, resulting in sexless fish which don't chase each other or lose condition at what would be the traditional spawning time. The normal rainbow is is a diploid fish. Uh, triploid, well to make a triploid uh, you pressure shock the egg when it's only a few minutes old, uh, interrupts the development of the egg and, and stops the fish from maturing essentially. Uh, so you end up with all clean looking, identical, nice bright silver fish all year. Presumably then, this is why anglers talk about fisheries containing only hen fish. That's right, you, you masculinise the female fish uh, so you end up with both, I can't remember if it's XX or XY now. So you end up with the male and the female with the same chromosomes. Therefore you get all female production, the eggs from the female fish are then shocked. Hence you get triploids from them. Currently, as is the case with most stillwater trout fisheries at the moment, rainbow trout predominate with a small scattering of browns thrown in for good measure. But Diva Springs has a well-earned reputation for producing some of the best brown trout in the country. Is there any reason then why you've backed off with the browns to some extent? And are there any plans for more and bigger brown trout in the future? Well, we hope to grow another big brown. I certainly do. I think the only reason we're, we're taking it easy now is just because they are a little bit more time-consuming. Maybe the bubble has burst a little bit, but the future, well, definitely the plans for the future is to grow, grow more big browns. 
Can we talk a little now about the physical characteristics of the fishery itself? In particular, its gin clear chalk stream fed water. Also, the weed growth and how that's managed to create the perfect stalking conditions. Plus, of course, the invertebrate community, which the water quality and weed combine to promote. And could this sustain the fish over a prolonged period, or would that take supplementary feeding for any fish lucky enough to last more than a few days before they're caught and knocked on the head? Uh, once the fish get in the lake, uh, there's probably not enough feed, natural feed, to sustain them at the, the weight they're put in at, as, as they are artificially fed before they're stocked. Um, but the water's all crystal clear, 95% of the time. We do get a fair bit of weed growth in the summer, which we look after. With our, we've got our own weed boat we cut the weed with and then net it off. So lakes are fishable all year, really, um, and hopefully... You know, nature has a big part in it, but hopefully they, they stay clear enough so people can stalk our big fish. Have you ever considered using chemical treatments such as Clarisan for the weed? Or is that a bit too drastic in that it becomes an all or nothing situation, which could be detrimental to the fish in the inverts, and would I suppose also have an effect in fishing terms on this being a stalking water? Uh, we have, but we, well, we have thought about it, but we like to keep the kind of natural, eco-friendly kind of fishery if we can. It, it would well could be detrimental to the fish in the inverts so you know, we try to try to keep to a mechanical means of cutting the weed and kind of look after it that way really. My experience of Clarasan is that when the weed does eventually die back it turns into a black crumbling not very nice looking mess providing no invert cover at all. So what invert mix do you have in these two lakes? We have an abundance, um, more, well, more than you can imagine, a gamorous. For some reason, uh, maybe because we're very high up the river system, very clean water, um, but the lakes are full of them. Uh, we also have smaller amounts of azelis, uh, freshwater louse, but still good numbers, a lot of damsels, uh, and a good mayfly hatch in May, and also the daddies in the autumn. And these are proper mayflies, I take it? not just some similar large olive species. Proper mayflies, big white ones. So good dry fly fishing prospects, particularly during the big hatches when it should be difficult not to get a result. Definitely, Duffer's Fortnight. Yeah, fortnight. have more fishermen than we can shake a stick at. We've already established Diva's stalking credentials. How important then, in catering to that elite sector of the market, is stalking? Because as much as they might like to participate, most trout waters in the country for water clarity reasons, are simply unable to take part. That's right, yeah, we, do, we, we attract a lot of the stalkers, I think probably because of the clear water and the size of the fish you can stalk in there. Uh, most people tend to kind of walk around a little bit with the Polaroid specs on, uh, trying to spot a big fish and fish a very heavy fly to drop in front of it and hopefully, all being well, the fish will take the fly. It doesn't always work like that. Does that then mean that non-stalkers who would prefer blind casting are going to be at a disadvantage here if they're not prepared to sight cast or drop a fly from the rod tip onto the nose of a fish? And if they were prepared to give, say, jiggling or catapult casting a go, what fly patterns would you recommend? Um, so long as you've got a fly with a lot of lead in it or a gold head to get down to the fish's depth very quickly, well, seem to be the flies for the job. Not necessarily a bright fly, maybe even a hare's ear. As long as it's heavy enough to get down quickly, should be perfect. And considering the size of some of the fish you put in here, some of these fly patterns are absolutely tiny by any standards, and it should be pointed out, often offered on very light outfits, sometimes even as small as a weight 4. 
Is that the way it is here? Certainly from my experience of fishing Abington, these combinations are more than capable of handling some very big fish. Yeah, much the same as Abington. Uh, sometimes smaller flies catch the bigger fish. Depends what the fish is wants on that certain day, I suppose. And a, a lighter outfit offers a bit more fun when you do hook the fish. What then, in your opinion, are the favoured clear water fly patterns? Uh, for the stalker, we do a range of fuller meal stalking bugs, all different colours and plenty of lead, like I said. Um, otherwise, a damsel is probably top of the list. You can use a damsel all year and catch fish. Uh, Daddy Longlegs patterns are popular, both the dry and the goldhead types. Small black buzzers, montanas, bloodworms, um, and then the lures in the in the winter time. Um, yeah, most flies you can use here and, and catch fish. And the weed here is more of a benefit than a disadvantage if stalking is what turns you on. No, the stalkers love the weed. Gives the fish a bit of cover, gives the stalker a bit of cover to hide behind. Uh, no, they love it. They, they hate us cutting it. We have to cut it sometimes because it does get a bit out of hand. Stocking predominantly triploid rainbows presumably means that you can open all year round. Is that the case? And if so, what is the seasonality of the best fishing periods? Yep, open all year, just close around Christmas and New Year time. Best fishing tends to be April, May, June, then September, October. It's generally it's too warm and too bright in the summer months, too cold to be out in in the winter, although the winter fishing can be very productive. For getting the best out of the fish in the holding ponds, can you explain a little about your feeding regimes, particularly pellet sizes, feeding rates and food to weight conversions? Well, we use the same trout pellet as all well, most trout fisheries use in the country, uh, sinking pellet, very high in protein, um, ranging from kind of 6.5 millimetres diameter, 8.5 millimetres diameter, just suit, suit the size of the pellet to the size of the fish. And they will, in ideal conditions, grow at a one-to-one -one ratio. So they will put on the same amount of weight as you feed them in pellets. And what tonnage of food do you get through over, say, a typical month? A uh, month we get through between four and five tonnes, depending on water temperature and how many fish are on the farm at a certain time. So our, our feed bill over the year is uh, uh, pretty hefty, to put it mildly. When we were growing on carp, barbel and chub in my fish farming days back in the early 1990s, I used to go direct to the pellet producers and would see firsthand some of the stuff that went into producing them. I can't honestly remember if that was around the time of BSE, or perhaps even a little bit before. But looking back, I've often wondered if perhaps infected offal could have got into some of those pellets, though I doubt that a disease like BSE is capable of such a big species jump from mammals to fish. Oh, no, definitely too big a species jump, and the, the fish food industry now is governed so heavily that there's only fish meal that's put into it, no kind of animal waste or animal blood. Um, is used at all nowadays. You know, it's changed a lot since the old-fashioned days in the early 90s and 80s, so definitely not a, a species jump of disease, I don't think. Just to recap then, you feel that the pressure to compete with other similar fisheries is no longer as strong as it was, though all these fisheries, yourselves included, still offer a very high quality of fishing experience. A better way to put it, perhaps, is that the pressure is off in terms of rapid turnover of monster or record fish to have an edge over the competition, because the economics of doing so has become too much for a potential customer, perhaps, to support. So what are your future plans on the big fish side of things? I think it would be nice to grow more big fish. Uh, we, we try and sustain the same average size of fish between 
five and a half, six pound. Occasionally it does creep over six pound, but you know we want fishermen when they do come to to catch a high average size of fish now. Uh, not so much the really big stuff, but we'd like to keep a few doubles in the lake for people to catch. Uh, hopefully in the future we could, could grow some really big, you know, even maybe record-breaking fish again. And what sizes of fish have you grown on in the past? £25 was the biggest last season, uh, 19.5 this season, so still fairly sizable as trout go, but not quite record-breakers. But you've had the records here in the past. We have, yeah. We, we still hold the brown trout record at £28. Um, we did hold the rainbow trout record at 36 back in the 90s. Just to wind things up, I'm going to ask you what might be something of a contentious question here, as different factions within trout fishing hold differing views on this particular subject. What are your thoughts on deliberately cultivating fish to grow beyond record-breaking sizes, then putting them into a lake where they probably won't last longer than a couple of days maximum before someone drags them out and then claims a British record? Not so much of a problem with the rainbows, because with just a few exceptions here and there around the country, these are all cultivated fish. But that isn't the case with the brown trout. I think it's fine. It offers a, a good day sport. It's completely economically viable and environmentally viable. We, you know, digging the lakes and improving the aquatic environment probably improves what was here before. Um, and as far as the fish go, uh, you know, they're bred for a purpose, same as pheasants with, with game shooting. It's you know, offers a day sport for somebody who's willing to, to come along and try it. But do you think it's right that the British Record Fish Committee have created an extra category so that cultivated fish can be separated off from wild fish, giving, say, a wild ferox brown trout a greater degree of status than the cultivated brown trout record from here at Beaver? Definitely the right thing to do. There's, there's a big difference between what a, a wild rainbow would grow in this country and what a cultivated rainbow would grow. You know, I think... I think it's right that everybody knows the difference and people know what we do and hopefully come and catch the big fish. Just on that point, though it shouldn't happen now unless a few rogue non-triploids find their way into a delivery, do you have, or have you ever had, rainbows breeding naturally in either of the lakes? I've come across a couple of natural populations on my travels, though in fairness, they have always tended to be smaller fish. No, we don't. they don't breed at all in our, our lakes. Um, not sure why maybe it's a temperature thing but yeah small amount of locations across the country they will breed but no certainly not in our lakes and, and definitely not in the river because hopefully there's not too many in there and what about a quick word about the facilities here as long with the fishing we do offer a, a lodge and somewhere comfortable to sit and eat your lunch and uh, hopefully a, a family kind of friendly family atmosphere for people to enjoy that you most certainly have it's been a real pleasure spending the day here in every respect not least of which the fishing, which while it was a little slow at the onset, quickly shifted up a couple of gears in the afternoon, with the best fish, taken by Graham, falling just a couple of ounces short of £16. My thanks then to Diva Springs for sharing its facilities with us, and especially to Stuart Barrett for facing my grilling without any advance notice of what questions I might ultimately spring on him. Mm -hmm.